Good evening and welcome to yet another episode of Across the Pond. I just have to start this one off by just saying I had the most amazing bank holiday weekend. Barry, we had Monday off. We had fantastic weather here in London. How was your weekend? I'm so jealous, Chad. We've been hit by a cold front right now. So as you can see, I'm all dressed up. It's got quite cold. We're heading towards winter. Obviously, nothing like a British winter, but for us South Africans, we still feel it, Chad. Indeed. Well, welcome to Across the Pond. So we got some fantastic feedback about our first interview last week with Nat Chats. And uh, obviously our very first guest, we've got a second one today. Um, But yeah, just one of those evolutions of the podcast, Barry, and uh, some great feedback coming through there as always. Yeah, we did it as an experiment. We weren't sure how it was going to go and the feedback has been amazing. So hopefully that continues to happen in the future. If you're listening right now or you're watching right now and there's someone you'd love to have on the podcast, please let us know. We'd love to hear recommendations. We're looking for interesting people from a wide range of of things. um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on, on, on that podcast and what's coming in the future. Absolutely. Well, as I said, we've got another. Be our guest, be our guest, put our podcast to the test. Be our guest, be our guest, be our guest. So when I first played this jingle last week, it was, it was really quite a funny little introduction. But now we're getting a bit more familiar with it, Barry. I love it, Chad. I love it. And when, when, when I think it was your, your fiancé, Cull, had the idea for how to do it. <laughs> And when I heard the idea, I was blown away and I was all for it. So it's so cool to hear it again for the second week in a row. Well, why don't you introduce our very second guest, uh, Michael, who's actually also tuned in via Zoom and he's waiting there in the background. Give him an introduction for us. Yes. So my good friend, Michael Daniel, I've known for a long, long time, played a lot of sports against and with him over the years. <laughs> and he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. And that's why I'd really love to bring him on tonight and kind of talk through some of the experiences he's had. He has had a very interesting career so far. He completed a degree in mechanics engineering up here in Joburg but then realized it wasn't that fulfilling for him and he wanted something different and so he did a complete 180 it feels like and is now doing his masters in applied marine biology down in Cape Town Um, and what that's brought is a lot of interesting experiences around the world with various kind of conservation efforts and and biological efforts and tonight we're going to chat to him about his recent expedition to Antarctica which I find fascinating so Michael welcome Thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. I was chatting to Michael before the call and catching up. We haven't seen each other in a long time, but I believe you're down in Cape Town, and I believe the weather down there is not as great as uh, in Britain either. <laughs> oh, no, definitely not. As you said, uh, we have a bit of a cold front, and today it's actually been raining the whole time. Oh, but um, here in Cape Town, we never want to complain about the rain after the floods we had a few years ago. So, I mean, droughts, sorry, <laughs> not floods, of course. Yeah. <laughs> The rain is the rain is much needed, I'm sure. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think let's dig into a bit of your story. Um, I mean, firstly, if we can kind of go into, you know, that change, that 180 degree that uh, Barry mentioned. I think, you know, a lot of people actually go down this uh, full end of a career spectrum and they kind of get there, realize it's not what they thought it would be. And I think it's quite a hard one and it takes a lot of real um, self-belief to, to make that 180 and, and actually go ahead with it. Well, actually, funny you say 180, I don't really see it as a 180. Um, I'm also convinced that I don't think anybody really knows what they want to do with their lives. Um, But I knew after I worked as a project manager down in Durban for a year and a bit. And although a great experience, I mean, I learned basically how to run a company, which was great. But sitting behind a desk all day answering emails was not for me. I mean, most of my yeah. friends knew that already and my family. So the surprise, there wasn't much surprise when I said I wanted to change. <laughs> um, but yeah, so from straight from there, I went to do six months of volunteering. Three months was spent in Greece doing uh, turtle conservation, which absolutely opened my eyes. I did a thing they call 
turtle jumping, which is a capture and release technique where you literally jump off the boat and catch them. Okay. Um, obviously, Gee, for conservation amazing. reasons, it's for tagging and measuring and stuff. We're not just doing right. it for fun, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then from there, I did another three months in the Seychelles doing um, island conservation on a tiny little island called Arid. Um, and we were, I was one of 10 people who lived on that island for three months, so it was absolutely incredible. Fantastic. I mean, yeah, that does sound like a lot of fun that you've had there. Um, I mean, the, the turtle thing sounds fun anyway, even though it wasn't yeah. for that reason. Um, so why don't you talk us on to the, the sort of main reason Barry wanted to kind of chat about some of the things in your journey. Um, I believe you spent some time in Antarctica as well. Yes. So, well, strictly speaking, I can't actually say that I've been to Antarctica. I can only say that I've been into the Antarctic. So... As Barry said, I am doing my master's in applied marine biology this year. And after chatting to some of my fellow students who had been at UCT since uh, for their whole undergrad, they spoke of um, these trips down to the Antarctic where students were able to accompany the ship and do scientific work on it. Um, so obviously, as soon as I heard about this, I asked if all of them had been yet and all of them kind of shrugged it off and said, oh, no, I haven't been yet. I haven't really had time. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And from there, I went, <laughs> um, I asked around, got jumped between a few lecturers. But uh, eventually, I got passed on to the correct guy. And he was looking for a student to help out on their plastics team. And I told him that I'm the man for the job. And a few months later, I found myself on a ship heading towards the Antarctic sea ice. Yeah, it was incredible. Wow. Wow. That's crazy, crazy. How long were you at sea for? Like, what, what, how long were you planning to go for? And what was the mission about? Okay, so the trip ended up being six weeks, but it was going to be anything from five to seven weeks. And the reason they give that amount of time is because at sea, you never really know because you could hit bad weather and conditions. And um, because of the scientific work needing to be done, um, you sometimes have to postpone or cancel stations um, along the way. So you, we gave ourselves two weeks leeway. Um, but the weather was actually perfect. Um, we didn't, we had a, a storm on the way back, but we actually managed to outrun it. So it was all good. Um, when I say station, I mean, it's just uh, coordinates. So we stopped all the way down going into the sea ice. So as I said, we didn't go to the continent of Antarctica. That's at about right. 70 degrees gotcha. south. Um, the maximum we went to was 60 degrees. Okay. Yeah. Um, but we were still completely in the ice. So it was, once we were at that degree, it was ice as far as the eye can see, white oh. to the horizon. Absolutely beautiful. Sure. Um, and a lot of, it was primarily a scientific cruise, actually a scale cruise, um, which is a very bad acronym, but it's Southern <laughs> Ocean Seasonal Experiment. And they just hmm. took the letters from so those the that you can get scale <laughs> yeah. from. Yeah. <laughs> so it is actually, I think there were four of them. I was on the spring one because yeah. they want to do one in each uh, season. And what's, what's the objective? What are they trying to accomplish on these missions? Um, just gaining scientific knowledge. So I was one of many teams. As I said, we were part, I was part of the plastics team, um, which was just two of us. I had a team leader and myself as the helper, basically. Um, but there were teams doing 
microbiology, so stuff like plankton, um, they call it primary production. Um, there were teams, a TraceX team, which were looking for trace metals. Um, these are important because they affect the primary production. Um, and primary production, you can think of it basically as the plants of the ocean. And so, although our forests produce oxygen, half of that oxygen is produced by the ocean. So that's why we're very interested in oh, wow. the microbiology of the ocean. Um, so obviously the stuff that that microbiology feeds on has to do with um, nutrient availability. And some of those nutrients okay. are the, the metals that some teams are looking for. Um, there was a weather team, obviously, doing weather and uh, they would actually meet every day with the captain to tell him um, what to look forward to weather-wise so that we could keep out of the way of big swell and storms and things. Um, we had a lot of engineers aboard, actually, something that is fairly new and I would have loved to have known. Unfortunately, it wasn't while I was at Tibet. Um But yeah, there were engineers. <laughs> they, they were uh, mostly the sea ice team, so they were doing mechanical properties of the sea ice. Um, so they, they got a lot of the cores that we took. Um, what else? There were oceanographic team, oceanographers. They were doing stuff like currents and things, and they were the guys who were leasing the extremely expensive scientific equipment as we went on a few stations. So these are like um, big sail boys, they call them. You can basically think of them of, as uh, surfboards with solar panels on them. <laughs> and they, um, they glide themselves around. You obviously program where they need to go, and they take... Right all kinds of atmospheric and ocean readings while they're going. Um, they also deployed some buoys into the ice to pick up the swell and stuff, temperature going through the ice. Um, what else we had? I think there was a CO2 team there, part of the nutrient guys picking up in the atmosphere as well as the water. There's also, while the ship is going, at all times there's water being pumped through the lab where people are sampling it. Um, I'm trying to think. And then obviously a lot of biologists there as well uh, for the marine mammals. So there was a seal team, um, a whale team and birders. That is a huge range of like disciplines yeah. and like lots of different people doing different things. I guess they kind of all use the same boat because it's quite expensive to get there, I'm assuming. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, I've heard stories. I don't know, obviously the figures, but I think it is very expensive to run. Yeah. Um, and because of that, you want to be able to show what you're doing for it. So there's, as I said, there's a huge array of scientific work going on and a lot of um, international people get involved as well. Um, the SA Gullis 2, which is the ship, it's top of the range, um, made in Norway. The okay. scientific, fully equipped scientific vessel. So it has labs, um, doors that the whole side of the ship opens to let scientific equipment out the side, um, cranes for lifting stuff on and off the ice. Um, it was incredible. I mean, you can imagine the ship stopping in the middle of the ocean, swell all over the place, and it has these um, propellers all over the place to keep it still. And then the wow. whole side of the ship opens and they lower this... Um, scientific measuring device that drops to the ocean floor, which at some points, I think the deepest one was 4,800 meters. So we literally sat at the station for like six hours while this cable let the thing all the way down and then all the way back up. 
and the, the ship has to keep itself in the same place and try to stop rocking so that you don't snap the cable. I mean, oh there's some gosh, phenomenal gosh. engineering involved there. I mean, that sounds absolutely fascinating and uh, obviously loads of technicalities to go through there. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm it's going completely over my head uh, and I'm sure a lot of listeners as well, because yeah, I mean, this is obviously some very technical stuff. Um, but if you kind of just bring it back to sort of basics, um, for you as a sort of guy, did you feel a little bit nervous to be on this ship, um, you know, in the middle of nowhere for all intents and purposes in this foreign world? Fear, I would say no. Initially, I was a little bit nervous, um, but that's mostly, you know, I mean, any traveling experience, you get nervous because it's kind of uh, nerves of the unknown. Um, and I must say, I was a little bit nervous about getting seasick because I'd heard some terrible stories. Yep. Um, but luckily for me, I mean, I felt a little bit uneasy as we left the harbor and got into the right. open ocean. But lucky for me, I actually had nothing after that. And then once you're in the ice, the you can't feel the swell at all. So it's actually beautiful. And the weather, was it as cold as everyone imagines it to be? It is absolutely freezing. <laughs> and I must say, okay, so I was there in spring. So it's not, it wasn't as nearly as cold as it got. So, I mean, I think the, the lowest temperature we had was somewhere around minus 10. But the temperature itself is not the thing that's dangerous. It's the winds. Because, I mean, the wind sure. barely ever dropped below... I would say average was about 20 knots. So with that, the wind chill, I mean, we had we had safety briefings all the time. Um, at the beginning of the cruise, we actually had a presentation from the onboard doctor about warnings about um, frostbite and the signs and symptoms and things to look out for um, because there had been oaks before, uh, mostly on the winter cruises where it was getting to minus 20, minus 19, minus 20 degrees C with like 30 knot winds. And these guys were out on the ice working with their hands, obviously gloves, but there's yeah. with the wind chill, it just got out of hand. But luckily for us, we had no instances. I mean, minus five or minus 10 is not too bad and it's manageable. And uh, we had lots of safety protocols and nobody was allowed out on the ice for more than I think it was two hours at a time. So it was right. constantly right. rotating. Yeah, no, it is incredible. That is, that is hectic. It, it, it kind of brings me to an amazing photo you got in your blog of you in a South African Speedo <laughs> holding this giant balloon over your head. And I think, I think for all of us South Africans, we all remember where we were when South Africa won that World Cup. Absolutely. I remember I was in San Francisco at like 4 a.m. in the morning with a, a huge pub full of pommies and South Africans. <laughs> Mike, you were on the ship for that World, World Cup victory. What was that like? Yes, it was incredible. So the, we actually lived in luxury on that ship. We did have Wi-Fi. A lot of these ships, you have no connection with the outside world. Um, very bad Wi-Fi, but for the <laughs> World Cup, the captain cut all of the Wi-Fi except for obviously the bridge for emergencies and the auditorium. <laughs> so for the time of the World Cup, all work on the ship stops and like the whole crew and the scientists were all in one room watching on massive projectors and you can imagine once we won it was wild oh, shouting screaming <laughs> hugging yes no it was crazy can imagine i mean yeah just being with so many south africans i suppose is, is so fantastic i mean i was even in norway funny enough uh, you obviously mentioned the manufacture of the ship um and the, the one thing that you know when you're in a victory like that is just having people with you i suppose the fact that you were on the ship with south africans uh, helps but i mean the fact that around you were miles and miles of just nothingness uh, that must have been a little bit eerie yeah a little bit eerie but um i mean i can't think of a better place to be you think you're far from home but we had surrounded by south africans i mean 
Um, the head scientist was actually a POM, so that's, he wasn't the happiest man, but <laughs> <laughs> you know we were. And it actually, it was so great because the most South African thing we could do after we won was actually a braai. And the that's, captain organized a braai for the day of the World Cup. It's like he knew we were going to win because after, <laughs> after we'd won, we all went down onto the heli deck. And I opened the big um, hangar doors for when the, they usually keep helicopters in there when they go and they relieve other islands. But it was all open. They had massive briars outside with the log fires going already. <laughs> and we had a massive Brian uh, jeweled on the heli deck while the snow was coming down. It was incredible. I mean, I have to ask, uh, with those, you know, crazy not wind speeds, who was the briar master that uh, managed that magnificent achievement? <laughs> There were many Brian Masters and they were um, a handful of the crew. Um, but once the fires were going, it was kind of, they put the meat out and then you went and meat and vegetables and whatever right. you wanted. And you went there and you actually bride it yourself. So they had this long row of brides set out and everybody just made groups on either side and you sat chatting there, flipping your buri and whatnot, which was great, yeah. Talk, coming back to marine biology for a second, um, I think that one of the things that really attracted me to your post was some of the photos that you have of kind of the marine wildlife, some of the birds, some of the seals, etc. And the photos look insane. It kind of looks like an alien planet when you kind of look at all that ice. I wanted to ask, do the photos do it justice? Or is there something that being there is very, very different to seeing a photo of it? I think it's true for almost any photo that it never kind of captures the feeling. Yeah. that you have because it's always just it's framed so you never get like the whole atmosphere you know i mean being in the ice it's hard to explain but it's just vast far as the eye can see it's white and actually at times it's very difficult to gauge the distance because i mean on land you can you can kind of see a bit of a hill even if it's flat like Bloemfontein. I mean, you can see you can see structures <laughs> and you'll know kind of how far away you are from stuff but out there when it's just, it's frozen ocean and it's white and you can't see any blemishes or anything. You kind of can't gauge distance and you can almost see the curvature of the earth because there's nothing, sure. like nothing in your That's line of sight. Yeah, it's incredible. So, I mean, my, my only next question is, when are you going back? Yeah, it's funny you actually ask that because I'm looking at going back um, this End of the year. So okay. I started asking while I was on board because I, I was enjoying it so much. So that was a short six-week trip. Um, but every year, um, the SAA Gallus 2 actually goes to the Antarctic base to relieve the previous year's team. Right. So on the way there, I think they relieve a few islands and they go. And, and that's when they take the heli helicopters and they transfer in crew and um, diesel and food and all of that across. Um, and that's a three-month voyage. So I'm hoping I'm going to be able to weasel my way on there somewhere. I mean, I made some good connections, so hopefully I'll, somebody needs a helping hand. <laughs> that is amazing. One last question before we, before we end up, Mike. I just wanted to ask, um, obviously climate change is a big discussion around yeah. the world right now, and kind of the oceans are one of the biggest ecosystems that are already struggling because of climate change. And you have now got opportunities to see some of these, some of the effects and see some of the things that are happening. What is something that you wish people would appreciate about the marine world or about the oceans that kind of the common person living in a city doesn't really appreciate? For me, it's the beauty and the diversity of everything. And it's something that comes back to the, the picture idea because it's great to take pictures of stuff. 
Um, but I believe getting people involved in conservation is you need to have people having these experiences, these incredible experiences with wildlife and nature. So, I mean, I think that's the key to conservation because once you get in the water or you see these things with your naked eyes, it's life-changing. Well, I mean, obviously it was for me with this career change, but I really do, I think that's the key to getting more people involved is getting, more, getting the word out there to more and more people. And hopefully that's with my pictures and stuff, I can encourage people to go out and see some of these things, you know? Hopefully they'll, I'll do my little bit to, to save the planet. <laughs> I mean, talking about pictures, uh, just one of the things, I'm obviously a photography nerd. Um, are you going to be making any investment in some drones on the next voyage? I would absolutely love that. I was actually, I was, I was wondering why there wasn't actually a drone on this voyage, but I think it has a lot to do with the wind. Because oh, right. from what I understand, it's quite difficult to, to fly drones in high winds. And I mean, it was yeah. gusting, as I said, usually about 20 knots, yeah. um, but up to about 50. And I don't think that's really possible. But I mean, if I can get my hands on, if I can get my hands on a drone, 100%, I'll give it a go. <laughs> well, we look forward to seeing that footage. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. For all of those listening and watching, I'm going to link Mike's blog post in all our social media. So please go and check it out. His, his writing style is awesome. I was telling him before, his blog is amazing. And the, and the photos are really worth yeah. going to check out. And hopefully it inspires the kind of the next generation of biologists who are going to have to kind of carry this mantelpiece forward. And I think for all of us who are living in our cities are very disconnected from the natural world, yeah. it's important for all of us to kind of get a sense as to what's happening out there and what's happening to our natural ecosystems and realize that your actions have actually have implications and they, they have consequences. And the more people can start to understand this, hopefully we can try to reverse some of the, the stuff we've seen and put ourselves on a more sustainable track. So thank you, Mike, for joining us. Such a pleasure, Barry. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll certainly, certainly keep updated with uh, what Mike is up to. And certainly if there's another voyage going on, uh, we'll be sure to uh, have that covered as well. Uh, so Barry, shall we move on to our next segment? Let's look at the week that was. The week that was. What a fascinating guest, Barry. It was just so great to hear about this different world. I was over my head in all the technicality of some of the stuff. Um, but yeah, just really interesting guests and interesting things that he's done as well. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, from, from my perspective, reading one blog post of his makes me want to add the Antarctic to my bucket list and makes me want to try and go there at some stage. And the photos and kind of the imagery and kind of the world there is just out of this... We can't really fathom it, really. And so really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move on to the week that was. And uh, this past week, assuming you're not going anywhere, Barry, and you're staying very much in South Africa, uh, there's a bit of easing there of lockdown levels uh, moving to level three. Tell us all about it and what it means. Yes, indeed, Chad. Last night from time of recording, our president, Silver Ramaphosa, came and gave a press conference and talked about the fact that South Africa is moving from level four down to level three from the 1st of June, which is about a week's time. So quite a big statement there. Of course, South Africa, like all other countries, is trying to find a way to slowly phase into normal life yep. and not let everything go straight away and try and like mitigate some of the risks of COVID spreading. And so a level four to level three is actually quite a big jump if you look at some yep. of the changes to the regulations. So let me run through a few of those for you. The first one is that you can now exercise at any time of day. <laughs> so previously, you only had a six to nine window in the morning to run or to cycle, any of that stuff. Yep. Now you can exercise at any time of day as long as you maintain social distancing and all, the, all those good things. 
The second thing is that there's no more curfew. So the curfew from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. is gone. And so that's a big deal, not just for personal freedom, but also for restaurants who've been unable to deliver dinners past like 6 or 7 p.m. because their staff had to get home. So now the curfew is lifted. Those restaurants are now able to service customers into the actual dinner hours instead of ordering at 4 or 5 p.m. The biggest one for Chad, for a lot of South Africans, and one that's been a cause for huge celebration, is that alcohol can now be sold for home consumption. (laughs) So that is a huge deal for a lot of South Africans. Um, Obviously, the alcohol ban has been very controversial this side. And from the 1st of June, you're going to be able to go to your local liquor store and buy your alcohol. Of course, bars and restaurants will stay closed, but at home, you can drink to your heart's content. So that's a big deal there. Cigarettes, on the other hand, stay prohibited. And so it's definitely 1-0 to the alcoholics versus the the, cigarettes. cigarette heads um so that's that's an interesting one there the next thing is that people 60 plus must stay home so that's yeah. not a change but it's kind of a re- reiteration that if you are in that in that age group which is more at risk try and stay home as best you can um, and employees who can work from home must continue to do so so it's not just like free for all now if you can continue to work home you should do so yeah. and i think that's going to be the case for a long time right we're going to see a lot of that for probably the rest of the year is if you can work from home and if you can make it work then please do that The biggest one when it comes to the economy, obviously, is trying to reopen things. So a number of industries are being reopened, and there's too many to mention. But basically, assuming that there's necessary cleaning that takes place with these workplaces, assuming that companies are screening employees in and out, assuming there's all these various bits and pieces in place, which are a whole another set of regulations, then you're going to be able to go back to work in kind of a staggered fashion. So the companies are going to be encouraged to kind of stagger working hours and not have their employees all in the building at the same time to try and stagger things and hopefully try and spread the people out, those who need to be in the office versus the ones who need to be at home. So that's quite a big one for the economy. As I've mentioned, restaurants, bars, public gatherings are all still prohibited. Um, Accommodation and domestic business travel is going to be phased in slowly over time as they start to figure out what happens. Um, Professional non-contact sport can resume, but without any crowds in the stands. So anything non-contact can now resume and get started again. And then on to education. Grade 12 and grade 7 are going to start on the 1st of June. And obviously, it's going to be a very different school experience. Lots of social distancing, lots of kind of cleanliness stuff. But they're going to be able to get back to their academic year and try and salvage what is left of the 2020 academic year. So, Chad, that's a lot of stuff that's been changed in South Africa. We're going to have to wait and see what it does to the actual case numbers. Of course, we're going to see a huge increase. But it's whether it can be managed and whether our public health system can actually manage this this, this extra load. If it can't, Cyril says, you will go straight back to level four. So it's up to us as South Africans. Yeah, it's an interesting move. And uh, I suppose a lot of people have been calling for this for some time already, looking at the low case numbers that you guys have. Um, But there was a lot of speculation that the big cities, Johannesburg and Cape Town, would stay on stricter lockdown measures for some more time, uh, obviously, as they are the hubs and, and that kind of thing. But do you think that speculation was misplaced? The government's obviously gone a different way. Yeah, it's hard to say because Cyril definitely did mention the big metro areas and he called them hotspots. So he put up a good... Put up a map at least and showed all the hotspot cities, um, but they're all on the same level. And I think the reason, Chad, is because the economic activity is concentrated in those areas, yeah. right? So if you're trying to reopen the economy, the majority of that is in places like Cape Town and Joburg and Durban, etc. And so it's hard to balance again the economic crisis with the health crisis. Um, and so I think that at the moment, level three is going to be across the country, and he's, he's mentioned the hotspot areas and be increased kind of scrutiny on them, lots more police, lots more healthcare workers, etc. Um, we have to wait and 
see. I mean, for us here in, in South Africa, Cape Town is a big problem. Cape Town has more than half of the cases in the country. Right. And so in the Western Cape, they're dealing with, with a lot of big numbers there. And so they've got to think quite differently to some of the more um, rural areas or some of the other cities around the country. But I think that everyone is kind of looking after their own municipalities for the moment. Because there's no interprovincial travel and there's no domestic air travel yep. just yet, I think Cyril's relying on his, his municipalities in the various areas to focus on their on their stuff and their numbers and do whatever's needed in those situations. But yeah, I think we're going to have to wait and see and see what happens. Um, of course, we're going to have to look at the data over the next couple of weeks and yep. see what happens as we start to ease things. And it is likely that maybe a Joburg or Cape Town will have to go back up a level if the numbers start to get out of hand. Well, it's nice to see that at least on both sides of our ponds, we're on a fairly similar sort of lockdown at the moment. Um, for a while, I've been feeling guilty that I can go for a run and my friends couldn't. Uh, then it was eased a little bit and they could run within three hours of the day. But it's nice that you can now go at any time of the day as well. Um, and obviously for those who have been struggling without being able to have a little bit of alcohol to uh, you know, ease the pain a little bit, um, I suppose nice that they can now have that as well. One of the things that I've certainly picked up on um, in the last little bit is this ongoing debate about masks and when it is appropriate to wear them. A lot of people saying that that those who do not wear masks in their own private vehicles are not following the rules. What do you think? I think it's a little bit silly. It's one of those debates <laughs> that kind of grabs social media because it's so divisive and so kind of uh, polarizing. Yeah. Um, I think it's safe to say the science that if you, as long as you look after yourself in your own car, you should be fine. I don't think wearing a mask in your own car is necessary. <laughs> but certainly as soon as you leave that car and go to public areas and you have yeah. to wear masks. I think South Africa has been very strict on that. Um, so even if you're running, so when I go for a run in the mornings, I take my mask and I run with my mask on. So it's quite strict in that sense. Yeah. Um, and of course, all public areas, all shops, no shop will let you in without a mask, et cetera, et cetera. But in your own car, Chad, I think you should be fine. <laughs> I completely agree. And uh, just to touch on our little discussion the other day about designer masks coming out, um, there has been this evolution of Iron Man, the Iron Man franchise, and they're now doing virtual races and all those kinds of things. And if you compete one of these virtual races, which I suppose you could do wherever you are in the world, uh, you can actually order this pack that includes an Iron Man face mask. Who would have thought? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's par for the course, Chad. We're going to see all these brands getting into this, I'm sure. And uh, like we said in a previous episode, it's going to become a fashion statement. So what mask do you have? <laughs> well, we'll certainly have to see and uh, which brands and which designers uh, make it out on top as this evolves going forward. Now, let's move on to the next one. Obviously, something very, very close to both of our hearts in the world of podcasting. And a figure that we've mentioned quite a few times, really, as the uh, the, the key figurehead, really, for for podcasting and, and who's really been such a dominator in this game, Joe Rogan, and the news this past week that he signed a deal to release his podcast exclusively on Spotify. Take us through your thoughts. Yes, definitely, Chad. It really is giant news. And for the world of podcasting, I don't think we've had something this big for a while. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Joe Rogan is probably undoubtedly the number one podcast in the world. He's largely credited for kickstarting kind of long-form interviews. Um, his, his podcasts kind of go against traditional media strategy, and they're often two to four hours long. He releases three to five a week. They're kind of a whole range of topics. They aren't focused on a niche or focused on a target market. They really are wide-ranging. And he's built this empire for himself, and his podcast Podcast Chad gets 
according to the last stats, 190 million downloads a month. <laughs> Insane. Which is absolutely staggering. If you compare that to any mainstream news platform, to any show, to CNN, to any of these big players, it dwarfs everything else. And so he's, he's managed to grow this audience simply with him and young Jamie in the studio. Very, very lean, no corporates, no nothing. Yep. He just runs it himself and he manages to get amazing, amazing guests on that podcast. So he has been the number one for a long time and he kind of is the iconic podcaster. Um, and from 2021, like you say, his podcast is moving exclusively to Spotify. Now, this is quite a big deal because traditionally podcasts were seen as a very open medium. That's the whole yep. idea, right? Yep. The whole idea is you post it online and you can consume that in a thousand different ways, whatever suits you. So whatever app you'd like on your phone, if you want to listen to it, if you want to watch it, if you want to watch it on YouTube, whatever it is, you've got open access to it and it's completely for free. And that's one of the major benefits. There's no paywalls. There's none yep. of that. And that's how podcasting has become so popular because it's been able to be uncensored. It doesn't have like corporate overlords making sure you say the right things. Yep. It doesn't have people kind of keeping you in check when it comes to jokes when it comes to any of that and so joe rogan for example is very uncensored and he speaks his mind and he t tackles controversial topics yep. that i think is quite attractive in this world where we're often looking for politically correct speech and that sort of thing when he moves exclusively to spotify that changes all of that right because what it means is you're going to have to download spotify in order to enjoy the podcast yep. so it's still going to be free and, and, and theoretically it's still going to be exactly the same show but you're going to have to download this new app and you can only listen to it there so he's pulling it from YouTube, pulling it from Apple Podcasts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that is a big deal because it goes against the traditional thoughts around what podcasting is supposed to be. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for him doing it. I think one of the reasons is that he's been censored on a lot of these platforms. I know on YouTube he's been demonetized like a thousand times because he tackles controversial things. Mm -hmm. And he wants to be able to speak freely and kind of speak to his audience without YouTube getting in the way. So I think that's a big factor. The other factor, Chad, is that it was a huge deal of money. <laughs> like the, the deal was reportedly worth over $100 million yep. for this deal to take him to Spotify, which is a huge amount of money. Yep. And puts him in kind of the, the realm of professional sports stars or musicians or that sort of thing and for someone who started a podcast in their garage to, to get to that kind of level yeah. it's hard to say no to that kind of money it's absolutely insane uh, just can't comprehend that kind of money for a one-off payoff um, just to sign that exclusive agreement now in terms of that demonetization obviously youtube is a predominantly video-based platform and spotify is a predominantly audio-based platform so how do these two kind of fit into each other how is he going to release his video content onto spotify and uh, with spotify not being catered for video specifically how are they going to link to specific advertisers um obviously that's youtube's key proposition yeah definitely it's kind of an open question at the moment what is amazing about joe rogan and his influence is that spotify are creating their video platform just for him <laughs> so they're going to launch it in september later this year their, their video platform for podcasting cool. um and it's it's really up to them to see how they're going to monetize this and how the ads are going to work into it because like you like you say there's no paywall but spotify have to monetize it in some way yep. and so at the moment what joe rogan does is he really reads out a bunch of ads at the beginning of his show and in the same on his YouTube. Um, and that's how he makes his money. So we have to wait and see as whether Spotify is going to let him continue to do those ads as well or they're going to remove those and put their own ads in. I think for most podcasts, the majority of the listeners, the majority of the audience are listeners, right? There's very yep. few podcasts that have big video audiences because normally you, you're listening while you're running or while you're doing dishes or while you're in the car, whatever the story is. Um, but Joe Rogan is different. Joe Rogan had two to four million views on every podcast episode on YouTube, Insane. which is why there's such a massive loss for YouTube. Um, whether that's going to 
going to translate into a Spotify world where Spotify is known for audio. It's known for, for listening and, and not really known for, for watching video. Uh, that remains to be seen. But I think for him, um, it's one of those things where under Spotify gets access to their, their hundreds of millions of users and uh, theoretically won't be censored, won't be kind of controlled, won't have the demonetization stuff that came from YouTube, at least for the moment. Um, and so we're going to wait and see what happens when it comes to those ads and, and how it plays out over 2021 and beyond. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. And just as this world of podcasting and podcasts just evolves, um, some interesting questions to be asked. One of the things that I've always just been wondering about is as a Spotify premium user myself, when I listen to a podcast, obviously it's free and it's free for anyone. And there's you know traditionally no ads um, unless the podcaster themselves puts those ads in the podcast. You can listen to it on the Spotify app. But as a premium user, if I was listening to music, a certain share of my monthly subscription would be going to those uh, artists as royalties. Now, as a podcaster, why could they not split up my subscription seeing as I'm spending a large amount of my time listening to that content, uh, doing the same thing. Yeah, I think that's I think it's a great point. And I think that's where the model has to go in the future, right? Because we talk, we chat a lot about the fact that this advertising-based model doesn't work for a lot of reasons. It causes a lot of chaos. It causes a lot of misalignment of, of values, misalignment of objectives. Yep. Um, and when you actually are getting paid on the basis of subscription models, that they, it kind of takes a bit of that away. Um, and so as a premium user, Chad, I'm assuming you don't hear any ads. And, and that's kind of one of the reasons you subscribe for, for a Spotify premium account. Um, and so I do see that going to podcasting in the future. And, and whether that goes with the Joe Rogan experience, I'm not sure. Um, but it's interesting to see what happens because this business, business model is evolving. And I've been very surprised we haven't seen more innovation like this before. I mean, Apple have been very quiet, even though they've yeah. been number one for so long and they kind of dominate the podcasting charts. Yeah. We haven't seen any innovation in their app, in in, in the way they, they distribute podcasts and any of that. And yeah. Spotify really seem to be staking a claim to see like what does the future of podcasting look like? They have made some gigantic acquisitions over the last couple of years, spending over $500 million buying podcasting companies left, right, and center. And so it's very clear that they want to become the number one place for podcasts yep. and whether the, whether they'll figure that out we'll have to wait and see yeah i mean one of those things is they actually even released a playlist a podcast playlist uh, a few months ago for the very first time uh, where you actually had curated playlists of uh, of things to listen to and various suggestions and those kinds of things and, and that's kind of one of those innovations that we like to see uh, like you say apple's just been kind of sitting on their hands and just been using the app as it works uh, currently the age-old question of if it's not broken why fix it might ring true but when you've got apps like spotify who combine music and podcasts into one app um it, it certainly seems like it should be some fire up their backsides to get innovating uh let's move on then to the next one uh, which is a company that we've spoken about time and time and time again about all of their various ventures we even spoke about them last week with nat chats uh, who's obviously been partnered by them it's facebook and their new innovation which is facebook shops uh, this sounds very interesting tell us all about it yeah, so the first thing you need to do if you want to learn about this is go and watch Mark Zuckerberg's live when he talked about this. <laughs> it is a crazy video. Okay. It, he really does look like a robot overlord in this video and he kind of like feeds all the internet memes because he's talking in monotone. He's kind of staring at the camera in a weird <laughs> way. He's a bit of a strange guy. But basically the live comes on and he starts to talk about the COVID and how COVID and the coronavirus has impacted the world. And this is kind of Facebook's way of trying to help small businesses, which is ironic because they've, they've really destroyed a lot of businesses in their past. And so they really have a, a checkered track record there. Um, but basically what they're doing is they're bringing e-commerce onto Facebook itself. 
So for a long time, Instagram and Facebook have been great distributors to kind of Amazon and to other like online marketplaces. And people would use Facebook to drive traffic to their store to go and buy their products and make money that way. What Facebook Shops is trying to do is bring a mobile first shopping experience onto Facebook and Instagram for free. Right, which is a big deal, yeah. as opposed to paying other other people to do it, and they'll be able to then link your messenger and your WhatsApp channels to give you a full like layer of customer service underneath your shop. Yeah. And basically what they're going to try and do is try and tackle Amazon or places like Etsy and those kind of marketplaces by allowing you to sell things directly from your Facebook or your Instagram page. And so it's a big deal, Chad. I think Facebook is at, yeah. a, is at a past of kind of stealing great ideas, stealing great models and kind of integrating into their app ecosystem to make it even stronger and even more closed. Um, and so this is another one where they're going to turn away from traditional ad-based stuff and hopefully unlock a new revenue stream, which is the the listing of products and services online, which you can then buy from your Instagram. It seems like a no-brainer. And uh, there has been a bit of a Facebook marketplace, really, where you can sell your own secondhand goods. And I suppose you could say they've been toying with this idea um, in an informal setting for some time. Um, but it's really cool that now they're going to scale this up and uh, let you actually set up your shop face um, and for free. That is insane. I'm sure over time there'll be certainly some some kickbacks and, and those kinds of things that they introduce. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how they manage that. My thing is one of the reasons for Amazon's massive success is the efficiency of of their sort of distribution centers and uh, how does Facebook think they're going to get into this market? Yeah, it's a good point. And I think that what they're trying to do is rather than trying to build it all from scratch, they're working with a number of partners. So they're working with with people like Shopify, with Big Commerce, with WooCommerce, and a list of 20 other partners. And I'm assuming they're going to handle a lot of the distribution and a lot of the existing infrastructure that's in place for that. And Facebook will just look at the front end and kind of right. focus on the customer acquisition. And that's why I think they're in an interesting place because remember, Facebook makes money from data. And so they might be in a place to kind of waive all the commission, not take any yeah. piece of the pie across across the across the line because they all they want is that data, right? That's how they make their money. And so you might be able to see that Facebook is able to to beat Amazon in certain places because they don't have to take a commission. They don't have to take a piece. Yeah. And so if you if you have to think about listing on Amazon and paying fifteen or twenty or thirty percent to Amazon of a sale that you've made, compared to being on Facebook and paying nothing to Facebook, it's quite a valuable proposition. And sure. so it's a really interesting play and whether they can make it work on at scale. Scales is yet to be seen. Of course, we've seen lots of failed products from Facebook when they've tried to do this sort of thing. Um, but I think for anyone in e-commerce, when you see Facebook getting into the game, it does make you nervous. Absolutely. And WooCommerce is a platform that I've used myself, um, obviously integrates with things like WordPress. Um, obviously, those uh, sites are, are easier than traditional to set up as an e-commerce platform, but still not easy. Um, I think the thing here is this is going to be really easy for the sort of traditional end user um, who has no sort of coding experience to easily be able to go on and set up a shopfront. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic place to see some great growth in the SME space. Yeah, definitely. It's going to give companies an opportunity to really sell directly to the consumer with zero friction, yep. right? So all those conversion funnels of trying to get them to click on your ad and then go to your website and then go through the cart process, etc. If someone's scrolling through Instagram and they see something they like and they're able to buy it immediately with no friction whatsoever, that is a huge win. And so I'm really fascinated to see what's going to happen with this. And also, Chad, I wonder if it might harm the user experience. 
Um, I wonder if, as we're scrolling through Instagram, if we start to see lots and lots of products being sold, do you think it's going to change the way we use the app? Absolutely. I think if it was implemented in that way, it definitely would. Um, It would certainly, certainly make other options more appealing. How I think they're going to implement it, though, is to keep it as a separate section, just like we've got Marketplace at the moment. Uh, Even if you look at their video offering, um, there's a separate section that you can access all the videos. Um, And so for me, I would think it would be sensible for them to have that as a separate section in the app. Um, But like we said, the Facebook app and the proposition has just been growing out of control recently. Uh, The Messenger Rooms, which we chatted about a few weeks ago, is now live I can actually see it whenever I scroll through it pops up at the top Um, and so the more features they keep adding you wonder really where that news feed is going to disappear to yeah it's interesting I think that that news feed has been the the core of Facebook for so so long it's been the reason that company succeeded right And uh, over time, that newsfeed, especially for, for our generation, has become less and less relevant. So yep. we start to move to other things. And so obviously, Facebook are trying to diversify their, their earnings, try to diversify their value proposition uh, to continue to kind of grow as a company. And so the Facebook of today is very different to the Facebook of 10 years ago. Absolutely. Well, let's move on now to Rwanda and a really cool little story that crossed up my newsfeed this past week. And that is that they have enlisted the help of anti-epidemic robots in their fight against coronavirus. They have got four robots and they all have fantastic names and these robots really are for me such a cool thing to see Uh, they've got these video calling devices so they go across from patient to patient checking how the patients are doing if patients want to talk to their doctors they can do it with that video calling uh, capabilities and obviously bring about a whole bunch of different new things Um, I really think it's just such a cool story to see Um, from a country in Africa um, traditionally maybe you wouldn't have seen this innovation on the tech side it's really relevant today, actually, Chad, because today as we're recording is Africa Day. And a lot yeah. of the conversation about Africa Day has been talking about trying to update our version of what we think Africa is and that stereotype. Like, we, we don't imagine high tech coming from these places. But Rwanda is an amazing spot for tech at the moment. There's such a cool ecosystem growing there. There's a lot of entrepreneurs really pushing the boundaries. And it's great to yeah. see stories like this because it kind of reframes how we think of Africa as a whole and make us realize that we can actually compete with the rest of the world and there's a lot of amazing stuff happening across Central Africa and East Africa specifically so it's a really cool story to see I'm really glad you, f- you came across it well Barry was very very kind to not ask me what the robots names were and I'm, I'm just I'm gonna do it because you know I have to have do to it go to the challenge do it. Uh, the names are Akazuba Ikirezi Mwiza Ngabo and Yuri Muri what do you think Barry Fantastic, fantastic. I'll, I'll leave it to our listeners to, to discuss how good your pronunciation was, but great effort, I think. <laughs> well, I had to give a little effort there at the least. One of the other things we wanted to chat about this past week, and it actually happened today just before we started recording this episode, was the increasing row in the UK over Dominique Cummings. Uh, now, a person that I think a lot of people haven't even heard of, he is the chief advisor to the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and there's been this row about him flouting lockdown rules. We've seen similar things. We've spoken about it in sort of Scotland, in uh, New Zealand as well. And in those cases, those particular ministers have actually just resigned straight away. Um, But what we saw here was Dominic Cummings coming out and actually making a statement um, to address this increasing scrutiny and increasing calls, really, um, that's been coming around through the public and even uh, through some of his colleagues uh, in the Tory party. So what what is this all about? What happened? Well, he traveled 260 miles during lockdown lockdown to be closer to his family. So today he went in and explained exactly what happened, uh, why he did this, and apparently his wife had symptoms, and the concern was that if he 
contracted the virus as well, they wouldn't be able to take care of their children. He also added that his house in London had been the target of social media campaigns. Uh, his house in London was actually shown on some news channels and loads of people were kind of going there and he had been shouted at in the street and all of that kind of stuff, hate speech kind of things. Um, so he decided that this was sufficient reason um, to actually go about and uh, collectively drive the 260 miles. Now, obviously, being the advisor to the prime minister, this raises a lot of scrutiny and the calls were really for him to resign by the wider public and, as I said, by some of those in his own party who had been receiving hundreds and hundreds of calls from members who had voted for this party asking whether this is going to be tolerated. Boris appeared at a press briefing this past weekend and came out and defended him vehemently, um, saying that he had spoken to Dominique for a couple of hours and that he was satisfied um, that you know he made the right decision or whatever the case is. Um, which was interesting to see. So interesting for me, the fact that Dominic was actually coming out today to make this uh, briefing, this is really in isolation, could be seen as a contravention of his code of conduct. Um, being the PM's public advisor, he in his code of conduct must not take public part in political controversy. And obviously in this case, he is incredibly controversial. Um, so surprisingly for me, Barry, this briefing went on and it was late, um, which is interesting to see on this side of the pond. I know it happens there in South Africa quite often, um, <laughs> but it was used to take place at 4 p.m. It happened just after 4.30. Um, and the, the interesting thing for me, obviously just kind of getting caught up with the story and, you know, finding out what's what's been going on, is that Downing Street has been going back and forth on the facts and the details of this case. And uh, they've kind of just created this web of deceit where right at the beginning stages, there were some simplistic questions asked of them and they kind of just denied things, you know, never really came forward about anything. And obviously, as time went on, one or two more details grew up and it just became this mad ball that just was rolling down the hill. Um, and it just shows us that all important lesson of owning up to a mistake at the outset, rather than trying to just let it blow over, um, which for me was definitely brought to the fore here again. So in his statement, he came out and said that he feels the rules allowed him to exercise his judgment in these circumstances, which is really interesting. And I suppose the interesting thing here is what message does that send to the general public? And uh, do you think on the back of this, I mean, the general public are obviously now going to try and exercise their own judgment? It's so strange, Chad. It feels like politics is such a mess right now all around the world. Right? We hear these stories every single week. Yep. And again, it comes from someone in power. It comes from someone who needs to be setting the example for the rest of the country. And uh, something like this happens. And then, like you say, the communication is all over the place after the fact. So it really is strange. It's hard to know what the truth is. It's hard to know yep. if they're trying to cover stuff up, if they're trying to like just push it aside or whatever the story is. Um, but the example that's set by those people is so important. And when the PR gets out of out of hand yeah. like it has, it can really cause a lot of damage because like you say, people take the example from these guys. And if, if, if he's doing this, then why can't I, right? Why can't I go and flout the rules as well? Yeah. Um, and so it really requires clear communication from leadership. And if there has been a mistake, like you said, they need to own it and get past it and kind of push a route forward. Uh, you don't want to be have contradictory information. You don't want to be having a row in public. You don't want to have to yep. have Boris coming in to try and vouch for them and then it's a he said, she said thing yep. and it's, it's, it's all a big mess. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, it doesn't feel like there's any real grown-ups in any of these political parties around the world right now. 
Yeah, it really is such a strange one to see. And for me, the strange thing watching this and watching the questions, uh, you know, that various reporters were asking him is that he refused to apologize. He maintained that he did not break the rules. He refused to apologize to those who have not been able to attend funerals of loved ones, those who have not been able to go to the hospital when their loved one is, you know, on their last couple of breaths, really. Um, and so he, you know, for me, in my mind, just didn't kind of respond uh, in that way uh, in terms of apologizing for what he's done. Um, in terms of the chain of events, uh, I definitely thought it was very convenient the way that it's been all stitched together. Um, obviously, the chain of events, it almost feels like he was laying down testimony in a court case, which for me was really, really interesting because here's this guy sitting in the garden of 10 Downing Street telling his side of the story um, in a really, really unprecedented, strange way. But it just shows you how much of an important thing this actually is. Um, and I mean, the fact that, you know, he went to a castle, people spotted him at a castle. So, you know, why did he go to the castle? Oh, no, he had recovered from coronavirus. So he needed to see whether he could drive. So he had to drive to this castle. And while they were there, you know, they just got out and stretched their legs for 15 minutes. <laughs> he was spotted in the woods somewhere else. Oh, no, what, ha what happened there? You know, so for me, it was very, very convenient the way it all came across. But like you said, I suppose you never know with these kinds of things. And uh, for me, I certainly don't think this thing's going to be over anytime soon. No, it's so indicative of what modern day politics is and what kind of the media does to these kinds of stories. And, and like you say, there's so much misinformation. There's so much confusion. No one knows what the right thing is. And of course, the story is going to be stitched together in a way that sounds yep. relatively plausible. And it's going to take a lot of journalists to try and put some effort and try and figure out what the truth is. But the question is whether that's actually worth the effort, like yep. whether all of that is actually worth <laughs> it or should be focusing on other things. Yep. I think in the coronavirus era, we've kind of realized a lot of these stories are not as important as we think they are. Exactly. But yet they get so much coverage and they get so much hype and so much buzz about them. And is that diverting focus from what actually matters, which is actually dealing with the coronavirus day exactly. by day? And that's a question we all have to ask ourselves and, and, and as journalists and as media organizations, you have to figure out as well. But unfortunately, the drama and the chaos <laughs> and the confusion, that sells ads. It sells yeah, ads. Absolutely. Not wrong there, Barry. Um, and it definitely will be detracting um, from the all-important business that they have to do. Uh, hopefully, some sensibility will ensue and uh, you know everyone will kind of just keep their wits about them let's now move on to our next segment stuff i found interesting this week on Stuff I Found Interesting, we're going to start with a podcast that I recently found from the New York Times, and I've been binging it. It's about six episodes in so far, and I think it's amazing. And it chats to a lot of the media stuff we've already been chatting out in some of the previous stories. The podcast is called Rabbit Hole, and what it is is an audio series run by the New York Times focusing on the impact that YouTube and its recommendation algorithm has had on politics and on the way people think, etc., etc., and it's a, it's a very interesting, like, wide-ranging discussion about what the internet has done, first of all, and then what YouTube has done specifically with the way they recommend videos to you. So I know if you've been on YouTube before, you know, you, you go on, you find a music video, you find an interview or something, and there's that bar on the right-hand side, which yep. is AI trying to figure out what is perfect for you in that moment. I think we've all had that experience. We go into YouTube to watch one video and three hours later, we wake up from our stupor and we realize, oh my goodness, how did I get to this photo of turtles fighting giraffes or whatever the story is, right? Um, and it's because of that recommendation algorithm. It's yep. because we keep clicking because that looks interesting. Oh, that looks interesting. And like the dirty truth behind it is that those videos are curated just for you based on what you like, what you look at, what you view, etc. And so this podcast kind of looks at the dangerous side of that and what that can do to someone if they don't realize that they're being manipulated in that way. And it follows one person who kind of was radicalized and became almost an alt-right kind of personality just because of what he was watching on YouTube. 
What was most fascinating, Chad, is that in the one episode, I think it's episode three, they go through his YouTube watch history and they look at all the videos he's ever watched for the last four years. And they kind of track his journey from like a kind of conservative kind of very normal guy. And then he starts to watch more and more extreme things that slowly over time, over the course of four or five years, really changed the way he thought and changed the way he thought about the world in a way that wasn't wasn't like balanced it wasn't nuanced it was very very one-sided and so i thought it was a fascinating podcast talking about the ethics of how this ai is impacting how we think and how we what kind of information we come across and especially in a youtube world where those those curations are incredibly good because they have to be um it really does show that sometimes we are getting shown things that might not be good for us but it's just kind of trying to tack that dopamine hit in your brain to keep you on that site for hours and hours at a time. Highly recommended. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, this algorithm, like you said, uh, for me has also been the result of many, many a wasted hour and many a rabbit hole. Um, but, you know, rabbit holes that I enjoy, funny enough. Um, and, and like you said, I think analyzing that kind of watch watch history and all of us can actually go past and look through our own watch history. And I strongly recommend you do it um, because it really is interesting um, to, to kind of watch how the trends change over time um, and how you might not even yourself be aware um, that these trends are actually being dictated to you by this kind of AI. Um, I think for me, though, really interesting here is that that suggestions bar would give you a number of options. And so ultimately, you're going to pick the one that, you know, is resonating the most with you. Um, So for me, is it fair to kind of blame an algorithm for leading somebody down this path? Or is it a kind of natural path um, of of somebody's original interest that maybe is heightened over time as they explore these new kind of topics? What you're hitting on there is one of the key philosophical discussions in this area is as to whose responsibility is it, right? Yep. And, and and do we rely on the user to make those decisions? Unfortunately, what I what I think and what I think that a lot of people are worried about is the fact that that looks like a full set of choices, but it's actually not. Right. It's a fallacy of choices because you're not seeing a wide range of stuff there. Yeah. You're seeing subtle variations on a theme or subtle variations on a political stance or on a kind of a... a an interest or something like that, you're not seeing the whole world kind of um, in, in that bar. And so while it feels like you're making a choice, at the end of the day, the algorithm is just trying to figure out how do I keep this person on the yeah. site as long yeah. as possible? Because okay. that's how I get paid. Yeah. So how do I keep them there as long as possible? And it kind of feeds into a confirmation bias where we like to click on things that we already agree with. Yep. And we don't come across enough information that maybe disagrees with what we think or kind of offends us or kind of gets in the way of what we ha- what beliefs we have yeah. to force us to think for ourselves. As a result, we kind of end up like making those beliefs more and more concrete without ever challenging them. And that's why we have such difficulty having arguments or having yeah. debates in today's world is because we only see things we agree with. And that and one of those recommendation algorithms is one of the reasons for that. And uh, I think there's a lot of work to be done there to try and figure out what does that mean for society and how do we fix that going forward? Yeah, that's a fascinating one. Uh, just this discussion of confirmation bias uh, is something that certainly, certainly resonates with me. And, uh, you know, we all get uncomfortable when you're watching a video and somebody just says one thing that doesn't agree with you and you're kind of automatically hit unsubscribe, unfollow, uh, you know, never watch a video again. And it's a tough one. How do we overcome this, Barry? Do we need to just force ourselves to sit and watch, uh, you know, something that we don't agree, listen to all sides of the argument? What's the best way to overcome this? 
I think the first thing is kind of an internal mindset of realizing that I'm not always right. Yep. And, and coming to that acceptance and that kind of, that mindset is difficult for us because we have such strong beliefs about certain things and, and the way we've been brought up, et cetera, really determines that. But it's that understanding that let me be open-minded about things. Let me not assume that everything that I think is correct because yep. there's a lot of it that's not. Yep. And so when you hear something that offends you or you hear something that is different to what you believed, actually give it a go and actually give it a chance to change your mind and try and think more like a scientist. Try and look for the evidence, look for the data as opposed to just pushing it aside because it doesn't agree with what no because it doesn't agree with what I believe. Yeah. The second thing, though, from a more macro perspective, is I do think we need to be injecting more randomness into our personal lives, and I think that the algorithms need to be injecting more randomness into their recommendations. Okay. I'm a firm believer that we should be reading as widely as possible and getting information from as wide a sources as possible so that we have access to the various points of view about certain topics. And that requires hard work, unfortunately. It's much easier to click on your Facebook feed and watch and read everything there. It actually requires you to get out of your comfort zone and to find other other portals of information that potentially have different points of view. And that requires us to actually care about ourselves and care about our original thoughts. And it's something I'm very passionate about, as I'm sure you can hear. I think it's one of the major kind of challenges we're going to face over the next 10 to 20 years is how do we as individuals force ourselves out of our filter bubbles, out of those biases, and force ourselves to look at things outside of what we already believe. Um, it, it, it takes a little bit of responsibility from the companies themselves, change those algorithms and get away from kind of the filter bias mentality, but it also requires us individuals to care more about the information we are consuming and actually make sure that we're not just consuming it all from one source that's been delivered to us on a silver platter. Yeah, absolutely fascinating one and one we could spend hours talking about, no doubt. Uh, but let's move on to something a lot less fascinating and a lot less uh, deep, um, which is what we are <laughs> turning to um, because we don't have live sports. Now, uh, to see you put this on there, Barry, I just had a straight giggle out because I've seen, I've come across these kinds of shows in the past um, and I've obviously thoroughly enjoyed them being a, a tech head. Um, but tell us all about this. What is BattleBots all about? Oh, Chad, I, I'm really sad that I know about this. But unfortunately, <laughs> the boredom got a hold of me in the last couple of days. And so the one night I was sitting on my couch, uh, kind of flicking through the channels that you sometimes do, yep. um, going through all the nonsense. And I, I happened upon a live robot battle between two <laughs> robots, which apparently was like the world championship or something. They were talking about the one that's been undefeated in 11 mm. fights and all this good thing. Basically what happens is that these two teams of roboticists go behind like a little booth and they've got these killer robots in the <laughs> arena and they've got saws on them, they've got fire yep. flamethrowers, they've got all sorts of stuff, right? <laughs> and the whole idea is that these robots fight against each other. They've got the joysticks in the, in the little booth and they fight and the goal is to try and stop the other robot. If you can get them to stay still for I think 10 seconds then you win the fight. <laughs> and so it legit is a proper fighting battle there's a huge arena there's lots of people in the crowd they're yeah. screaming the names there's a professional commentator there's like a bruce buffer type and now in the blue corner comes <laughs> yada, yada, yada. it's a whole thing and i was amazed by this i found it very amusing um very light-hearted entertainment and i couldn't believe it was so professionally done yeah. chad yeah yeah i mean it's the commentator but that resonates for me when i first watched it in the past um is that they know the backstory of the teams the backstory of the evolution of the robot and you know all of these very 
various tricks and what he can do. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's just so fun to watch. Um, as you say, a full production. Um, and I'm sure getting a lot, lot more uh, hits and a lot more hours uh, watched now that there's not any sport going on. But soon that'll be changing soon. One of the other bits of sport that you watched this past week, Barry, was a marble race. Uh, I also came across one of these videos a couple of weeks ago and I was fascinated by how mesmerizing it can actually be. It's weirdly addictive, and that's why I'm a bit cautious about recommending it, because I know it can take you down a proper rabbit hole. But basically, I was watching last week Tonight with John Oliver, and, and as one of the jokes on one of their last shows, they've sponsored this marble racing competition. And it legit is that. It's simply marbles racing on this, these elaborate courses. It's like chicanes, and it's like a whole thing. They've got qualifying rounds. They've got races in the end. they also got a backstory. I love it. The backstory about the marble, yeah. where it came from, how it did last season and the season before. It really is a, a whole production. And I promise you, if you watch one of them, you end up watching a whole bunch, which is really <laughs> terrifying because you could spend a lot of time watching marbles, Jack. Oh, man, so random. But definitely do go and check it out uh, just for the laugh. I'm sure on our Instagram page, we'll post one or two videos, hoping not to keep you there for too long. Um, but certainly, certainly <laughs> is interesting. And you do have to wonder whether it's completely random or whether you do have marbles that are inherently uh, speedier, heavier, more aerodynamic. Um, let's not waste any more of your time. Shall we move on? <laughs> yes, let's move on, Chad. Looking ahead. So as we look ahead, one of the things we've been talking about quite a bit is GDPR and obviously how it's evolved over the last two years that it's been out in force. Barry came across a report this past week that just checks in with its status and its evolution, some of its cases. Tell us about it, Barry. Yeah, so GDPR, for those who don't remember, is, is a data privacy law and regulation that came into law in the EU about two years ago. And it's called the General Data Protection Regulation, as, as to be expected. Um, and it's widely regarded as one of the world's toughest kind of legislations around data privacy. Um, so when it came out, there was a huge kind of upset and an uproar about it, about how strict it was and kind of what new things it brought into play. And so I thought it would be nice to look back on the first two years and see what has happened with the GDPR and has, has that changed the way people think about data privacy around the world? What's interesting for me, Chad, is that in those two years, they've only handed out two fines so far. The yeah. first one, quite a small one, of 51,000 euros to Facebook Germany, and then a much bigger one, 50 million euros to Google France about Android. But for two years, only having two fines in place really does show how difficult it is to actually get these tech companies to pay up and actually win those legal battles. Yeah, that's the right question to ask, Barry, because what is the point of this institution if those are the only fines? I'm sure there's been loads of breaches. Just one that I can think of this past week was EasyJet and how hackers came in and got 9 million customers worth of travel itineraries, email addresses, um, various other things as well. Um, and so obviously for future flights and privacy planning and that kind of stuff, they had to then contact every single one of those people and uh, remedy the situation. But surely loads of other breaches uh, coming through. Why do you think there haven't been more fines? Yeah, so based on what I've been reading and kind of the gut feel around why this happened, it's because these things take so long, yeah. right? Even if you can prove a breach and you have to go through the whole legal system and a lot of these big tech companies have these huge teams of lawyers that are incredibly good at what they do and are paid yeah. an amazing amount of money yeah. to try and avoid these fines actually being enforced. And so a lot of these investigations take a long time and the actual legal proceedings can take years and years and years. And yeah. so I think that's one of the reasons. The other reason is that the GDPR is kind of managed by quite a small organization which is significantly under 
resource, someone called the Irish Data Protection Commission. And they don't have like massive resources to be able to chase a lot of these at once. Um, What they have said is that there are lots to come. I think at the moment there's a bunch of different investigations going on. There's eight going into Facebook right now, three into Twitter, two into Apple, two into WhatsApp, two into Google, one into Instagram. So there's a lot going on. A lot of those are ongoing at the moment. So we'll have to wait and see what happens in each of those investigations. But unfortunately, the actual commission is quite small at the moment. And when you're fighting against these big tech companies who have lots of money to throw at lawyers, it really is a difficult fight, even if you're on the right side of the law. Absolutely. I mean, that kind of legislation makes us as consumers feel quite comfortable that there's these regulations out and about. And, you know, we're much happier that these have been implemented. But if they're not being enforced and these kinds of fines and investigations and uh, actually holding companies accountable for breaches, um, surely that level of trust and that level of comfort that we have is misplaced. Yeah, it's it's hard to know how to feel, Chair. I think you're right. I think the GDPR does give us some sort of indirect comfort that we think the things are going on, but we actually need to see action. And that's why these fines are so important. If we see these things happening, kind of like we saw the Harvey Weinstein thing, if we see someone being held accountable, we all of a sudden realize, okay, cool, this is actually being taken seriously and things are actually changing. I think one of the indirect impacts of the GDPR is that it has moved the world kind of sentiment on data. We've seen lots of copycats around the world, especially places like Brazil and India and even in California, have started to change the way they think about data because of GDPR. So hopefully this is kind of the lead domino that really does shift the conversation and hopefully we see a lot more accountability in the in the years to come as they get more and more adept at kind of figuring these investigations out and as some of these investigations run their course over the next couple of years but it's important that we see that as a consumer to know that our trust is not misplaced and to know that this thing actually has teeth at the end of the day. Absolutely. And I suppose the the core part of that and why they are not currently able to embark on more investigations and all of those kinds of things is their funding and their set-up structure. The question is whether the EU should be throwing more money into these kinds of organizations to hold uh, these types of institutions accountable. But we'll certainly certainly have to see as time goes on. And uh, as it's turned to, I suppose it's a relatively new institution. And surely as you know, the next decade goes on, it's definitely going to evolve and and uh, hopefully become a lot more of a bigger powerhouse in the space. Let's move on to our next segment. Develop and grow. Develop and grow is our segment, of course, that we look at how do we become better humans and how do we do things a bit better in our lives and be less anxious, be fitter, that sort of thing. And tonight we're talking about mental fitness and about mental states. I came across this amazing quote, Chad, in a book that I'm reading, and it goes like this. Every habit is supported and strengthened by the corresponding actions. If you want to be a good reader, read. Or a good writer, (laughs) write. The same also applies to states of mind. And that last piece is key. The same applies to states of mind. This is by an author called Epictetus, who was writing back in the ancient days, an ancient Greek philosopher. And basically, this is a, a, the idea behind this is that often we think about habits, we think about physical habits, we think about getting fitter or going on a diet or quitting smoking or those sorts of things. And we understand that in order to get better at those habits, we have to practice certain things, we have to change our lifestyle, we have to change our ecosystem, change the way we live. With our mental states, we often fall into a trap of thinking that my mood or my mental state is not in my control. We think that it's, we think that it's because of our circumstances, because of how people treat us, because of what happens to us in our lives. Yes. But what the, what the author is saying here is that our mental states are habits as well. And they're habits we can practice, we can get better at. And if we force ourselves to get into those mental states again and again and again, we can then get into them easier on a more regular basis. And so I think it's a good reminder for us, Chad, that it's not just getting fitter and getting stronger and those kind of tangible habits, but it's also your mental states and how you manage your mood and manage your optimism 
home and manage things in your life? Absolutely. It's a key one. It's a really important one. I think the important thing here is to be aware of your mental state and to be able to track that over time and to be able to spot those kinds of habits, be able to spot those patterns that we fall into so easily. I don't know why we always take the path of least resistance. We know it's bad for us, but we just do it anyway. Um, and so to be able to be aware and, and track that over time um, is really the key to, to actually implementing these kind of habit changes and making that positive life change in the end. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's realizing that that is under your control. Your mental state is actually under your control. And the moment you can get your head around that, then you know how to make that better and you can actually work on it. And if you, if you, if you journal on it and you kind of introspect, like you say, and you get a sense as to what's happening and how various things are affecting your emotions, yeah. you can get better at managing those emotions. And I think that's a skill we can all improve on, especially in today's world. Definitely. Loads and loads going on. Um, it's easy to get lost away with your thoughts at the moment. Um, so definitely do check in with yourself. Um, and uh, yeah, just be aware of those habits and, and the fact that you can change it, uh, change those patterns. I think that's the important takeaway from this. So that brings us to the end of another jam-packed episode. We've had two guests in a row now. Um, certainly not going to be as regular as that going forward. Um, but hopefully you've enjoyed a little bit of a different element to the podcast. Um, we're going to keep trying to bring interesting people on here and uh, yeah certainly like Barry said at the beginning let us know who you would like to hear from uh, we'll definitely try and make it happen definitely and if you have any thoughts on the new segment and kind of how it fits into the show let us know as well we're always trying to make the show as good as we can and we love hearing from you guys as to whether this is working or whether it's not so please let us know what you think of the last two episodes especially the guests right at the beginning and uh, thank you for listening as always we really do appreciate you absolutely well do please check out some of our social media pages we're on Instagram we're on Facebook we're on Twitter as well so do check us out there you've listened to episode 29 of across the pond we'll see you next week oh, 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 oh.